Okay, let's pray together as we come to God's word. May the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're going through a series through the book of Genesis. We're looking at foundations for life. That is, uh, whether you uh, come this morning or you're hearing this from a Christian background or not a Christian background, all of these things are actually applicable to humans in general. So they're helpful for us to learn from. This week, we're looking at uh, marriage, actually pre-marriage, technically. This, uh, this week and next week, we're zooming in uh, on some verses which talk specifically about uh, husband and wife relationship called marriage. Um, but to do that, we need to look at, well, what happens in the lead up to marriage? Because uh, as we see, Adam was made, but he wasn't made married. And that is true for every human being. You were not born married. And so there is something universal to learn here. There's, in fact, things to learn about obedience towards God. There's things to learn about loneliness. And there's things to learn about God's grace when it comes to this state of pre-marriage. It's helpful for us to know. And that's just part of what we do here at City Reach Man. We just look at the Bible. We look at what it has to say to us today. Uh, and we actually look at that in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let's have a look firstly at the call from our text to obedience. The call from our text to obedience. Now, you, you really, um, the first sort of three chapters or so of the book of Genesis like cover a whole lot of ground. Right? And we've, we're spending about uh, 11 weeks going through just these three chapters of the Bible because they open up huge topics for us. And you get this panoramic view of the creation of the world at the beginning, and then it begins to zoom in more and more and more until it gets to the point where we're looking at just one person and then eventually one relationship between a man and a woman. And that's what we're getting to. But in the lead up to this relationship, God speaks to Adam, the first man, and calls him to a life of obedience, a life where he is ruled by God's words. And that is the path for him to live an everlasting life, an eternal life through being obedient to God's word. Notice that God uh, breathes on Adam as he forms him out of the ground. He breathes on him, gives him life. Now, this might seem a bit strange if, uh, you know, you prescribe to evolution or something like that, and you may not believe that this had happened, but truly, we cannot create life as human beings. We have no power to do it. We can create technology with what we've been given, but we do not have the power to create life. We can procreate, but we cannot make life ourselves from just smashing atoms together or something like that. It does not work. And so, actually, we don't have an answer other than God for bringing life into this world. So Adam was made and so given life through the breath of God. But, he's, but he said, in order to keep life, in order to maintain life, you must be obedient to the word of God. This is what it says in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he's given a prescription. This is what you do, and this is what you ought not do. And if you do the thing you're not supposed to do, you will lose eternal 
life. Now, this has bearings for us a bit later, which we'll get to, but um, this habitat that is created for humanity from God is actually very important for us to understand. And this comes to mind because just recently I was creating a habitat for some new chickens in my back garden. And chickens are uh, livestock, so they have a job to do, they have work to do. You notice in our text uh, that uh, the Lord God in uh, verse 15 took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Well, I bring, bring these chickens into my garden to work the ground, to eat the scraps and to produce eggs that I may eat. Okay, so they are given work, they have purpose in their lives. These chickens also have boundaries in place, right? Just as you see, Adam has boundaries in place. He has law, God's word that he needs to obey. There's things he, there's things he is to do and things he is not to do. There's trees he can eat from and trees he cannot eat from. So too with my chickens, I need a fence around to uh, protect uh, them from themselves, from escaping and sort of getting lost, and also from the prowling pug, which uh, sort of patrols the outside of their fence, and of course, the lurking fox, which apparently, I was told just this week, will wait for months until the dog is asleep, and then they will climb up the chicken wire into the, uh, during the daytime, climb up the chicken wire into the pen and eat your chickens, so beware the fox. So there's purpose, there's security uh, for these chickens and of course people and then there's comfort, right? The the chickens need a shelter, they need a place to roost, they need a nesting box to produce the eggs that I so desire to eat and you know what? Chickens don't go really well on their own. They're supposed to be in pairs, they need companionship. So I had to buy either three or five chickens and decided that three was more sustainable than five as it turns out. Now, the reason I tell you this is because all of the things I did for the chickens, what was for their good? They're designed as livestock, right? They produce eggs for us to eat. They're a productive creature, but they need work. They need purpose. They need boundaries, and they need shelter and comfort. They need all of these things around them for them to flourish, to function fully, and we are just the same. God makes us, he places us where we live, he gives us instruction and he cares for our welfare and all of it is for our good. If I move outside the boundaries, I'm in danger of being devoured, consumed by either my own desires or by the desires of people apart from me. My only way to true flourishing in this life because I am like Adam and you are like Adam, is to living a life of obedience to God's word, to letting him rule over you because you trust that he is good. Now, this is important because sometimes we skip over these bits and we go straight to the marriage text and we think the purpose for everyone's life is to get married. Now, that's not exactly true. Of course, marriage is good, and lifted up in the Bible as something as important. It's actually the one relationship we're given that is most like God's relationship to his church. The marriage relationship is lifted up. It's declared to be holy. It's actually an institution that is God-given. That's why Christians care about the state and the nature of marriage. 
That's why we get concerned when people mess with marriage as it's given to us by God because it is a fundamental institution. It's important. But first, we are not called to marriage. We are called to obedience. We are called to a life of obedience in relationship to God. We're called to be under his care, to obey his word. And so many people think that their whole life is destined to be fulfilled through the one. Either you must find that one person. If you find that one person, then you will be fully satisfied by them. But actually, the Bible tells us that we are to be fully satisfied by God first and then trust his provision for us later. In fact, that's the pattern we have in the text. Notice, verse 15, God gives Adam purpose. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, Eden to work it and to keep it. He's given purpose. Work. Now, we'll cover this a few weeks ago, but part of our purpose in this world is to work, to have a vocation that has various different forms, whether we consider ourselves to be in a pre-work state as a child, perhaps in education or learning, or perhaps we are unable to work because of illness or age or whatever, but work is broad and it has uh, several spheres in it, but I covered that a few weeks ago, so you can look at that if you'd like to. So purpose, uh, we're given his word to, to, as boundaries, to take care of us. Uh, we're also, it says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. We're, we're, God cares for our, our comfort, our sense of intimacy, our closeness toward other people. So we are called to come under his lordship. Now, I think many of us struggle with this. Many of us struggle with the high call and the complexity of saying yes to God in everything. Like, that's the standard here in the text. That we're made by God, we're designed by Him, we're cared for by Him in every way, and that we, as a right response, ought to be obedient. Everyone has trouble with that. And yet the Bible is really clear that if we are, there will be, a, if we are obedient to God, that we live in line with our designer, that there will be a great blessing for us. Let me read this out for you. This is uh, really helpful for us to see. This is Psalm 1. I just want you to capture the blessing that comes from being obedient to God's Word. It says, Blessed is the man who walks in the count- sorry, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that it does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, it's black and white, isn't it? Like, you follow God, you're obedient to His Word, you live under His rule, and your life will be blessed. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Your leaf will not wither. In all that you do, you will prosper. And yet, if you do not obey God's Word, you will perish. Your life will just fly, you'll grasp at it, and it will disappear from you. So the calling is really high. 
But the blessing is enormously large. And of course, it makes sense, doesn't it? Right? When you, you get a new package uh, in the mail, you get something delivered, you assemble it according to the instructions, and it ought to work according to the instructions. If you throw out the instructions and just do whatever you think, then, you know, and I sometimes do that, then I assemble it wrong, I look at it and go, oh, should have read the instructions. Go back, disassemble it, start again, and then it works properly. Now, intuitively, I think everybody knows this, that there is a great blessing that comes with being obedient to God. There is a great blessing. But intuitively, we also know that it is very hard. That it is hard. There's an enormous amount of trust required. Let's have a look just a little bit deeper back into our text again. Let's see how God deals with us where we're at. You'll notice in the text that there is one thing that is not good. What is it? What is it? There's one thing that's not good. Sin hasn't even entered the world at this point. We get to that in chapter 3. There's one thing that is not good, and that is that man should be alone. Even with purpose, even with security, the boundaries in our lives, we still have a sense that there's something that's not good and God identifies it for us that man should be alone. And so, yes, while we are first called to obedience, whilst we are first called to a relationship under God as Lord, it's also important to recognize that human beings need relationships. Right? In fact, God is the one that reveals that to be so. Notice that God is the one who's diagnosing here. It's not man. It's revealed for us already to see that we need companionship. I want you also to notice something. This is really important, that God is the one who provides. So Adam is, taught, is set to work. Adam is given boundaries for his life, and God is the one who provides. We actually get a good... Um, Jesus actually speaks to this quite directly in Matthew chapter 6. This is what he says. So thinking about um, our daily life, he says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, often we're worrying about our, our welfare, our security, our purpose in life. We're worried about our companionship. You know, if we're married, we're worried about our spouse or how much they look after us or what level of love that we're getting or a future spouse or perhaps a previous spouse if we're divorced or our partner has died or whatever. We're often in a state of anxiety about that, but Jesus says, when you put God back on his throne of your heart, when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he will meet your needs. He'll look after you. Now, this does require an enormous amount of trust, but the equation is clear. If you are obedient to God, if he is Lord of your life, he will take care of your needs. And in fact, he tailors it specifically because your needs are not the same as the needs of the person next to you. Did you know that? They're not exactly the same. Some of us will be married. Some won't. 
people who are married will have a spouse to part, either to die, to go to be with the Lord, God willing. Some of us get divorced, which is a terrible thing. But these things happen, so God's plan and goodness for each of us is different. And yet he knows exactly what we need. Why? Because he is our designer, he is our creator, and his intentions for us are good. So rather than trying to take matters into our own hands, what do we do? We put Jesus back on the throne of our lives as Lord. We serve him in our purpose to work in whatever stage of life that we're in. We look to the boundaries that he's given us in the Bible, the things we ought to do, the things we ought not do, and we trust that he will provide for our needs. Now, typically, uh, when I chat with people who are single, um, and they're, but they're keen to marry at some point, I say, put Jesus as Lord of your life. That in, in so doing making him number one in your life, then you can trust that he will look after your needs. And I say, well, often it happens that, and I I know many people, this is true for myself, that when I stopped trying to take matters into my own hands and uh, too intently searching for a spouse, because that was the number one thing in my life, actually, it was only the time when Jesus became Lord of my life that God brought the right person along. Now, that's true, that was true for me, but that's not true for everyone. However... If Jesus is Lord of your life, if, if you are totally entrusting yourself to him, then you will receive whatever he gives you or doesn't give you as your good. That's the bottom line, isn't it? The bottom line is that you will receive whatever he does or doesn't give you as your good if Jesus is Lord of your life, if he's the center point of your life. So, in a pre-marriage state, we're called to obedience. In fact, everyone's called to obedience. This is really universal for human beings. And there is a great blessing to being obedient. A great blessing, it's obvious, it's consistent throughout the Bible, and yet it's exceptionally hard to do. But if you do it, God will utterly look after you in every way. He will care for all of your needs. And if you really trust him, then even the bad things and the really difficult and even the evil things, you will receive as good from God. Because he alone has the power to transform them in his master plan to work out for your good. So first our text reveals to us the obedience and the call to it. But secondly... Our text reveals to us loneliness. Loneliness, the trouble before the fall. The one thing that's not good in all of God's good creation. In fact, God looks at everything and says it's very good when everything is set up and yet he looks at a man who is put to work, whom he's given boundaries and he says it's not good that the man should be alone. Gee, this is important for us to grasp, is that God cares about your personal welfare. God cares about your loneliness. God cares about how you feel 
loved. God cares about it. He's the initiator here. Let, let's put to bed that God doesn't care about you right now. From the first pages of the Bible, it says he does. To the last page of the Bible, it says he does. Right all the way to the cross of Jesus Christ, it says God cares about people and whether they know they are loved by him. Everybody. It's written down for us to know. In the uh, 1953 Disney animated movie Peter Pan, we find uh, a magical sort of preteen boy, Peter Pan, who lives in a place called Neverland, a place where he never grows up. He can stay a boy forever in his island paradise. He is a very capable uh, young man. He is very strong, he's able to you know, fight sword fights against his nemesis, Hook. He's able to look after the lost boys and be their sort of surrogate father. He's able to sort of uh, you know, go around his island uh, paradise in relative ease. And of course he can fly too, so he's doing pretty well for himself. The problem for Peter Pan is that he is utterly selfish. Utterly selfish. His whole life is about him. In fact, in the mythology, because there's several versions of Peter Pan, but in the mythology, it's said that he, at seven days old, heard about his parents talking about when he becomes a man, and he ran away and refused to ever become a man because he wanted to live in his boyhood dreams forever. But when he meets a young woman and her two brothers, the young woman, Wendy, he almost falls in love, almost. He finds a companion in her that he can get along with, someone who might fulfill that hole in his heart, that place where he's lacking, the thing that he's trying to fulfill with the lost boys, but he never does, the thing that he's trying to fulfill with his um, sort of surrogate girlfriend, Tinkerbell the fairy, but never does. She's never quite enough. No one's quite enough, and maybe he thinks he's found it with Wendy. So he invites Wendy and uh, her two brothers to come along with him from London to Neverland and he flies them over. But the problem is he cannot commit to her because of his selfish desires. It seems that being the boy that never grows up absolutely consumes Peter Pan so that he can never commit to her fully. He only wants her to fulfill his dreams. In fact, he wants her to come to live in Neverland and to become surrogate mother to the lost boys too, so that he would be father and that she would be mother. Now, she's naturally inclined to do so, but she begins to feel homesick and heartsick. She feels that things aren't right in this place. Perhaps she recognizes that Peter Pan is really just living out all of his fantasies. He's utterly selfish, though he's intelligent, though he's a brave young man, he is utterly selfish and perpetually self-absorbed. Wendy and her brothers decide to offer the lost boys a home. The reason they're called the lost boys is because they don't have a family. And Wendy comes up with an idea. We'll take them home back to London and adopt them. We'll make things right But Peter, Peter Pan, refuses. He cannot give up his selfish 
life. It still rules in his heart. In fact, in some of the non-Disney versions of this story, Peter Pan actually goes out kidnapping children to join the lost boys in their island paradise so that he might rule over them in their perpetual state of loneliness. Isn't it a sad thing? That ruling over ourselves, not being able to commit, all comes out of this selfishness and being self-absorbed. So loneliness. Loneliness is this one thing that the Bible describes as not good even before sin has entered the world. And yet God has a plan. It seems pretty clear in our text that God's plan is to provide a spouse for Adam. We see uh, that he will make a helper fit for him. Now, the word helper is uh, not to denigrate women at all. In fact, the Holy Spirit is described as a helper, as in part of the triune God. So the idea is that God will make someone who is a perfect fit for him and he a perfect fit for her. That their relationship, just as all of creation has been so far, will be in perfect harmony because being alone is not in perfect harmony. So that could be perceived as a solution to loneliness, marriage. Now, let's be honest. It is a solution to loneliness. It is a way that God gives a gift of companionship. Many of us are married for that very reason, because God has given us that gift of companionship. He's given us something good by giving us another person. Of course, as we get married, we realize that marriage ain't so easy. And perhaps we've had an idyllic view of what it looks like from the outside, and yet once we're in, we're like, uh, the window dressing isn't the same as what it looks like on me. We look at marriage and from the inside, and perhaps we realise it's not all it's cracked up to be. In fact, many people actually feel just as lonely in marriage. The Bible's actually really clear about this, which is so good for us. Because it's not like a mythology that sort of paints these pictures of extraordinary things happening and that we just can't bring to land in reality. In fact, still in the book of Genesis, uh, we get to the story of uh, Jacob, Leah and Rachel. And we find a story of a very unhappy marriage. Jacob, uh, his uh, name actually comes out of one who uh, deceives others, uh, J Jacob the the heir of uh, Abraham and Isaac. And he's one who uh, has been cheating his brother. He's been cheating his parents his whole life. He's had to run away. He's on the run, but he's looking for a spouse. And he finally uh, finds one. And, you know, back in uh, other eras in the world and other cultures, it was okay to uh, marry uh, cousins and that kind of thing. And so he uh, was looking very intently at his cousin, Rachel. He liked the look of her, and so he had to uh, pay a dowry to her father, Laban, in order to get the woman of his dreams. He was convinced that if he got this one woman, Rachel, that his life would be complete. He looked at her and he thought, this is it. I'll get everything I've ever wanted. Of course, Laban was even more of a trickster than Jacob was, and said, well, 
if you promise to work seven years for this woman, then I'll give her to you. And so Jacob, being you know, full of bravado and uh, willing to do really anything to get the woman of his dreams to fulfill his plans, works these seven years. And on the very evening uh, that his uh, wedding was supposed to be consummated, the night after uh, he'd worked the seven years, instead of uh, Laban, instead of sending Rachel in, he sends Leah, the older sister, veiled, so Jacob doesn't know who it is, into the tent and they consummate the marriage. Now Jacob wakes up in the morning realising, uh-oh, I've got the wrong sister. Now the reason why he'd looked over the eldest is because the Bible says she was weak in the eyes. It's not a really clear term. Doesn't really, we don't really know, like she may have had poor vision. It probably just means she was unattractive compared to her sister. Because Rachel is described as being beautiful in form and appearance, whereas Leah is described only being weak in the eyes. But he's married to her. And Laban says, well, it's not done this way in our culture. You have to marry the older before the younger. And so, and Laban's worked out this plot that he can get 14 years of work out of this uh, young man. So he says, well, for another seven years, what, you can have the other sister too. And so he does. But think about Leah. Leah was the woman that nobody wanted. Her father didn't want her because she was unattractive. And so he was figuring, well, no one had married her yet. So if I, if I cheat my way into getting her married off, I won't have to look after her anymore. Her father didn't want her. Her husband didn't want her. And so she is in a living hell because she is unwanted by her father, she's unwanted by her husband, and she is lonelier than she's ever been in her life. She's stuck. Her husband loves another woman, and he's also married to her. By the way, the Bible never endorses polygamy, just as a side note. Never endorses it. In fact, almost every time the Bible talks about polygamy, it's in a negative sense. Because look at what happens, what happens from it. Rivalry, dissension, loneliness within the marriage. This lack of love. Now, why on earth would the Bible tell a story like this? Someone, you know, gets married, marries the wrong woman, is deceived and is being deceived, and she's utterly lonely and depressed in the middle of it, just hoping that if she just bears enough children, her husband will finally love her. The Bible is totally honest, actually, about loneliness. So yes, marriage is a solution to loneliness, but gee, the human heart with sin, that marriage is definitely not the cure. It's not the thing that we might hope for. Now, one of the other things I think, particularly Christians, but even those outside the Christian faith, looking at Christianity, really struggle with is they think that if you're obedient to God's word, which says marriage is between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others for life, it's monogamous, it's under God, that no sexual relations are permitted outside of marriage. That we look at that and it's, and it's like once you're in, that's it. It's till death do us part. 
I mean, even Jesus' disciples said, oh, like, nobody can do that. That's impossible. No one can make that kind of commitment. That's impossible. Even Jesus' own followers said that. Many of us look at that and go, will obedience to God lead me to a life of loneliness, either outside of marriage or in marriage? Will it? Because if I decide to be fully Christian and fully obedient, and then I get married and I don't like it and I feel lonely in marriage, I'm stuck forever. And in fact, the Bible says that if you get divorced, it's better not to remarry. Now, it permits remarriage after divorce, and there's a bit more we could unpack around that, but it's actually better not to marry after divorce. And even after you're a widow, once you're a widow. But we'll get to that another time. Many of us look from the outside or from the inside at this high call to Christian obedience when it comes to marriage and think, I will be lonely if that's really what it takes. Does obedience lead to loneliness? And so many of us skirt around God's word when it comes to this. We say purity in singleness is not possible. We say you can't do it. So I will selectively read God's word because actually the things that we have trouble with in the Bible are not the things we are unsure of. It's the things that are abundantly clear. That obedience leads to blessing. That God's plan for marriage is good and worth following. That God has a better intent for our lives than we do that God's plan for human sexual relationships is one man, one woman, to the exclusion of all others, in a lifelong covenant commitment. And no sexual relations outside of marriage are permitted whatsoever. That's the biblical standard. Jesus, even in the New Testament, peers into our hearts and goes, even if you're thinking about it, if you're lusting in your hearts, you've committed adultery with your eyes. Jesus knows that actually it's in here is where we need to get this sorted out. Obedience is something that comes out of the heart. But the question remains, does obedience lead to loneliness? Now, we might look at the Bible and say, well, hey, this is too hard. I like some parts of Christianity. I like the bits that build me up. But the call to total obedience, the call to sexual faithfulness, the call to reserving sexual relations to marriage exclusively. And if I can't get that, sometimes I think, well, I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. I'm going to selectively read the Bible. I'll believe some parts and not others. Unfortunately, this is a very slippery slope. A very slippery slope. Because if obedience leads to blessing, then disobedience leads to a curse. We reap what we sow. That is, if we choose not to obey God's word, if we choose that Jesus wouldn't be Lord of our lives, that he wouldn't rule over us, then we get Genesis chapter 3 again and again and again. 
when we feel temptation come, like the slippery serpent, and it whispers in our ears, God's not going to look after you. God's way isn't good. We hear the slithery sound of something saying, you're better off doing things your own way because you're the only one that knows how to look after you. When we obey that voice, it always ends up worse. It never ends up better. We're either in marriage or outside of it. The good news is the Bible is a story of redemption. The Bible is a story from Genesis chapter 3 onwards of humanity trying and failing and trying again and failing again and failing abundantly and God again and again and again coming with grace and love, bringing his word, his forgiveness, his freedom, his salvation to people. And this increases more and more and more right the way through the Old Testament until you get to the end of the Old Testament and you look at it and you go, no human being has ever been able to follow God's word and be fully obedient. No one has been able to achieve it. They've all tried and failed. Even the the shining lights, the heroes of Israel, the King Davids committed adultery with Bathsheba. Even the most celebrated heroes fell the furthest. When we take matters into our own hands, it doesn't lead us away from loneliness. It just takes us further away from God. Now, Peter Pan's selfishness led him to battle his nemesis, Captain Hook. You see, when Peter had decided that he wasn't going to go with uh, Wendy and the boys back to London and to finally find a home, to finally give up his self-absorption and to enter a family, Hook hatched a plan. He thought, I can get them all. So he captured the lost boys, he captured uh, Wendy and her brothers and he set a time bomb behind for Peter Pan to blow him up. Peter somehow survives, he frees uh, Tinkerbell as well and then he goes, for the first time really in his life it seems, he goes to fight for the sake of others. The only thing that he's got on the line here is that uh, Wendy, her brothers and lost boys have been captured by Hook And he says, well, I'm actually going to lay down my own life, in a sense, and fight for their freedom. So he goes and battles one-to-one against Hook. And Hook says, you wouldn't dare to fight old Hook man-to-man. You'll fly away like a cowardly sparrow because that's what Peter Pan normally does because he's utterly selfish. And yet this one time, somehow, this spark of courage, this spark of selflessness comes out of nowhere And Peter Pan puts his own life second for the sake of others, narrowly avoids death and defeats Hook when he falls into the water and is chased eternally by the crocodile, which has the tick, 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 as you remember, of the um, alarm clock in its mouth. You see, Peter Pan learns that the only way to overcome the loneliness and the selfishness which he feels together is to let others take first place in your life. The only way to stop being selfish is to let a greater virtue take hold, to put your own life on the line and have someone else on top. 
There is a way out of loneliness. It is obedience. But there's something missing, isn't there? Because we see that the way out of loneliness is relationship with God. It brings us into relationship with other people, but loneliness still seems to remain. And yet the Bible tells us that there's this great blessing that comes from obedience. Psalm chapter 1, it's abundantly good. And yet we're still left with, well, how do we do this? How do we live a life of obedience without loneliness? How do we really trust God when that standard is so high and so hard? And so what we need is grace. What we need is the inside part of us, the motivating part, what we call the heart in our modern language, but it's really our motivations to be changed. In the book, The Stepford Wives, which was made into a movie, uh, it's actually called, uh, this is a great um, genre, it's called a satirical feminist horror book. That's the genre. Love it. So, uh, in The Stepford Wives, the uh, main protagonist, Joanna Eberhardt, who's a talented photographer, moves with her husband to the town of Stepford, Connecticut. However, after a short time, she discovers that the women of the town are oddly submissive. They seem to have a lack of free will. Free will. They've turned from the independent thinking to become robot-like housewives who love just to do the cooking and the cleaning. It turns out to her horror that the men of the town have a secret society where they are actually turning the women into robots, totally obedient to the will of their husbands. You can see why this is a satirical feminist horror um, book. Now, sometimes we think, if God is real, why didn't he just program us for obedience? You know, why didn't God, like the, Stepford, no, the, the, the men of Stepford, just program us like the Stepford wives into obedience? In fact, it's often used as a way to discredit Christianity and discredit the Bible. Well, if God is so powerful, then why doesn't he just make us do what is good and right and obedient? He could, right? Couldn't he? He just put a little chip in our brains and we'd all just do the right thing. But what would we become? Robots. Robots. Sometimes we think, if I really obey, I really give myself to God, that he would be the center even over my deepest desires for purpose, for comfort, for security, I'll become like a robot and I'll never be happy. But God is not like a Stepford husband. God made us so that we would have a relationship with him. If he wanted robots, he would have done so in the garden. He would have not said to the man, these are the trees you ought eat and these are the ones you shouldn't. It would have just programmed him to do so and it would have been in his base code. God desires real relationships with us. Why? Because we are made in his image. We're made by love with our own will. That true love is made up when God's will and our will come together in a relationship called love. That is where it comes together. If we were robots, there would be no commandments. There would be no word of God. 
The call to obedience shows us that God made us for a love relationship with him and with each other. And this is the way into the heart. This is the way that we can live a life of obedience and receive the blessing. Even when things are hard, even at the cost of perhaps loneliness because we trust God. But we can only do that when we recognize that the way to get into our hearts is through love. Now there was another garden that Jesus entered into the night before he was crucified. Another garden. It was called Gethsemane. It wasn't the Garden of Eden. It was Gethsemane. And it was in that very place that Jesus did the one thing that no ever human being has ever had happen to them. He was perfectly obedient in every way, even up unto death. And yet he said, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. Did he not? That's what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he was looking forward to taking the weight of sin upon himself on the cross, and he knew it was going to cost him utter loneliness. He was going to be forsaken by the Father. And yet he'd lived a perfect life, never sinned. The Bible says he had no sin. The Gospels are in full agreement. Jesus never sinned, not once, not even in heart. And he's the only person in all of human history that his fullness of obedience led to death and loneliness. It's never happened before and it will never happen again. Why? Why? I mean, you look at Psalm chapter 1. Let's just go back there for a moment. Let's just interpret this text one more time. It says... Blessed is the man who works not, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Where's the blessing for Jesus? It's not there. What does it say? Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Jesus is not being blessed as he's on the way to the cross of death. This is true for everyone but Jesus. Listen to it again. Verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, as in they will be judged. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. No, because they are under judgment of sin. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The only answer to why Jesus, the perfectly obedient man, was willing to stare an eternity of loneliness in the face and accept it willingly is because he was taking wickedness upon himself. That is the only answer we are left with in the Bible. That Jesus out of absolute love for humanity, would take utter loneliness upon himself so that you and I can look at what he has done and say, I will never be lonely because Jesus will never leave me nor forsake me because he died for me. Though being perfect, though willing to take the eternity of sin upon himself, he said, not my will, but yours be done. That is the God 
who wants a love relationship with us. That's the God with whom, if we put our faith in Him, we will have no dark night of the soul, so dark that if we give ourselves over to it, that we will end in utter despair because we know that Jesus has gone there first. He has saved us from it. Jesus took the sin of death so that we wouldn't have to. This means for you and for me that I can say yes to Jesus in marital faithfulness. I can say yes to Jesus in my mind and in my heart in singleness. This means that we can say yes to Jesus. We trust you. I will not listen to the slithery voice that says I'll be lonely if I put my hope in you because we know that he went to the uttermost depths for me. Only because Jesus said, not my will but yours be done, do we know we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. And so, we have someone greater than the spouse who is fit for us in Jesus. We have someone greater than Adam who was not obedient to God's word. Jesus has earned the eternal blessing of God and so us by faith in him, in a love relationship with him, will be fulfilled. Life can throw nothing at you that will consume you and destroy you because Jesus was destroyed for sin on your behalf. If you have Jesus, you've got everything. You've got everything. I want to just apply this to three parts and we'll finish. This is good news for people who have a Peter Pan self-centered life. Peter Pan's life was all about him. It looks like he was brave and strong and competent and could fly, could do all these things. And, you know, he had like his team of people that he was working with, the Lost Boys. Like that could have been his career. You know, he was their general. You know, he he had good co-workers like Tinkerbell, you know, and... But he couldn't commit to a relationship with Wendy because of his self-absorption, because of his self-centeredness. And so he was destined to a life of loneliness. The problem is if you endorse your self-centeredness and your self-absorption, you will enter loneliness perpetually, whether you're married or not. If it's all about you, you'll never be satisfied. Everyone will always fall short. But if Jesus comes in, if you realize the weight of what he's done for you, then your cup will be filled and overflowing. Then you put your roots down in the living waters promised to the woman at the well of Samaria. You drink and are filled by him and then you have something to give others. You have something to give in your singleness. You have something to give in your married relationship. It's not all about you anymore because you realize it's all about him. So if you're struggling with sexual purity, either inside or outside of marriage, the answer to you is Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let Jesus in. The answer for you is not B, 
be obedient to God's word. Let me, let, let me say that to you very clearly. If you just go straight to your obedience, you will fail. Because you know what you ought to do and you're not doing it. You've already failed at that and you'll fail again. But if Jesus comes to rule and reign over your life, if what he's done moves you more than anything else, then you will obey him from the heart. You'll obey him with your eyes and with your mind and you'll want to do it because he's done it for you. You'll love him because he first loved you. That's the way in. That's the way to obedience. It's through faith in Jesus then comes obedience. Obedience does not come first because you, like everyone else in the Old Testament, will fail. If Adam couldn't do it, you can't do it. So it's good news for those struggling with sexual purity. Make Jesus Lord of your life. It's good news for people struggling with loneliness inside or outside of marriage because Jesus gives us something that only he can provide. Purpose. True purpose, true security, true comfort. And he'll never deny us those things. He'll never let us down. Your spouse will let you down. Your future spouse will let you down. Your former spouse has let you down. But Jesus won't. And if you realize that, you'll have something to give them. It will no longer be about you. It is good news as well for spiritual friendships. I say this because many of us won't get married. All of us will have a marriage that will end. Some of us have had marriages that have ended. And so we need what's called the church. Jesus never got married. He was the most spiritually fulfilled man that ever lived. Paul never got married. He said it's better not to marry so you can devote yourself more fully to God. Paul had a lot of friends. We need Christian friends. As we put our trust in Jesus, God still says it's not good for man to be alone. And so we need people who will be not self-centered, but giving to one another. People who will live in good relationship to one another. And so church, let me encourage you, cultivate spiritual friendships. It is good for one another and it glorifies God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us through it. We ask that you would take these things deep, that you would bring us not to just our obedience, but to Jesus, the obedient one, that out of his perfection, his self-giving sacrifice, we, our hearts will be turned to him. They will be filled with love and so therefore desire obedience and live it out. We pray that we would do this for the glory of God. Amen.